You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. We are in part three of our series, Walls Fall Down, where we are watching the real actual historical account of the Hebrew people leaving Egypt, going out in the desert. They didn't believe God. They didn't believe they could take the city. They complained to God. He made them wander around the desert for 40 years. That generation, the complaining one, died off. And now there's a new generation of those who believe that God could lead them into the land. And they are now crossing the Jordan River. They are now coming up to the gateway city called Jericho. It's a fortress. You've got to get beyond Jericho if you're going to take any of the rest of the land, and they know it. And so Jericho is a huge city. It's double-walled. So even if you breach the first wall, you've got to get beyond the second wall, even to make a major dent on that city. And it is beyond the capability of the Israelites, and yet God has led them right here to begin the very true account of them attacking that city. And as they're coming up to the the city, if you have your Bible, open with me to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, and I would highly encourage you to take your program out today. We've got notes there for you to have fill in the blanks, and I think God's going to speak to your heart as we look at this together. Joshua chapter 6, beginning with verse 4, said this, Have priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark, and on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up and go straight, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. And so right away, we see this central piece of furniture, if you will. Right there is a central figure, a central piece of the attack on the city of Jericho. And and I want you to know something that, you know, some of you in this room, you're, you're just thinking in your life, you've come up against huge walls. And you're thinking, if I could just get something extra... If I could just make this deal come together, if I could just get one more of whatever, if I could just get the next upgrade of whatever, if I could just get the relationship I need, then it would be a game changer. And what you're realizing is you think of like sports. Sometimes there's a great athlete, but when they're injured, it's hard for them to change the game. But when they come back off of injury, they not only come back in the game as a game changer, they get entered into the game they not only make victory plausible, they actually make victory possible. And you know athletes like that. You're like, what is it about that athlete that makes them just game after game after game a game changer? And you're thinking, man, if my team could just get an athlete like that, he would be or she would be a game changer and it would be phenomenal. But you got to realize that as we look at this account of historical account of the Israelites attacking Jericho, that the ark is a game changer. The Ark of the Covenant of God is a game changer. The Israelites have it. And you say, well, what's so special about the Ark? The Ark, if you, you need to realize, has been in, this, uh, in the Bible, is mentioned 200 times under 22 variations. Sometimes it's called the Ark. Sometimes it's called the Ark of the Covenant. Sometimes it's called the Ark of the Covenant Law. 
And it just talks about these different things and what it's described as over 200 times in 22 variations uh, as uh, it was created and then carried by the nation of Israel. And you might say, well, you know, the ark is interesting, but what is actually inside the ark? It's a box. And I, I got to let you know that a couple things. First of all, um, this is not real gold. So don't rush the stage. Uh, second, some friends of mine in Southern California built this and just did a phenomenal job of it. It's just a replica. And, uh, and in a few moments, I'm going to open it. And when I open it, nothing's going to come out and get you. I know some of you have seen movies and different things, but nothing's coming out for you. You don't have to close your eyes. Please stay engaged. Um, but nothing's going to do that. And, and, and you say, well, what, what is in the ark? What made this thing so special to the people of Israel. And you got to look, and on your outline, it gives you some indications of what's inside the ark. And let me just uh, stick this stuff down here. I'm going to open it up, and we're going to look at what's inside the ark of the covenant. And there's a couple things that are just right away, right inside the ark of the covenant. And on your outline, you'll see a couple things that are that described. First of all, is a jar of manna. Now, manna was like a bread-like, almost cereal-like uh, item that would happen when the, when the people went out into the desert, they escaped Egypt. And, and they said, they got in the desert, and they're like, it's the desert. What are we going to eat? There's so many of us, and, and what are we going to do? Well, God, we need food. And so God caused, they complained to the Lord, which isn't a great thing to do, but they brought a legitimate thing before the Lord. And God caused manna, it's, it was like bread, every morning, early in the morning, to fall from heaven. And the people would go out and they would gather it. And at first they tried to gather like, well, let's get a lot. Let's get enough for the week. But God created manna with like a 24-hour shelf life. Except on the Sabbath day, then on that day he extended it so they would collect not only the day before, the day of preparation, but then on the Sabbath they had enough. And that one day out of a week it wouldn't spoil. But all other days it would spoil within 24 hours. How unique is that? And they begin to eat this, and, and they were just grateful because God brought provision from them, but like you and I do, when God brings provision, we try to hoard. Well, I need two of these. I need, like, I need a whole storehouse. I need to put this all away. And God wanted their daily dependence to be on him, so he said, put in a jar of manna. The second thing he said, put in the ark, was a stick. This was Aaron's walking stick. Aaron was the high priest, and this was his like official stick that he actually would carry with him. Even when they were talking to Pharaoh in Egypt, he would carry that with him at that time. And, and they said, put that in there. And Aaron's, Aaron's stick had budded. It had started to grow. It was a dead, dry stick, but it started to grow flowers. At one point, even almonds, and by the way, this was in 24 hours, even almonds came out of the stick. And they said, put that, put that in the ark. And the third thing they said to put in the ark was the tablets of the law. So it was basically the tablets that Moses inscribed the law of the covenant. And there's two tablets because there was an agreement for both sides. If you and I make a tablet and we are making a, a financial agreement, if we're making a business agreement, if we're making a contract, both parties get a contract. But basically it's God's copy and Moses' copy. And they were to, they were to put in here that this was a covenant that God made with the people of Israel that he would be their God. It also included the Ten Commandments. And those were to be put inside the ark. And, and I want to let you know that as the Israelite people, they would think, wow, these are just cool things. Like how cool is that? These are all, all have something seemingly miraculous around them. But the truth is, if you're taking notes today, that 
These are all uncomfortable reminders to the people. You say, what in the world do you mean, Dave? Well, you take manna, for example, that God would give it every day, but like humans do, we easily forget God. We say, God, thank you for your provision, and yet we need more than that. We need to do it. And then at certain points in time, the people would complain. It's all we ever eat. Can't we have some meat? And at one point, God, God gives them birds that come by, quail that come by, and they're able to eat meat, but he also kills off a bunch of them for complaining. Isn't that interesting? As God begins to reveal his heart about complaining, about grumbling, it's okay to bring a complaint, a legitimate complaint to God, but our culture is built on grumbling, built on complaining, and, and we easily forget God, don't we? And so this is an uncomfortable reminder that he would have to give them every day. The second thing with Aaron's rod, this is an uncomfortable reminder to the people. You know why? Because God chose Aaron to be the high priest. And right at that time, they said, wait, wait, time out. There are 12 tribes, and Aaron is Moses' brother. So that's like, you know what, that's nepotism right there. So, so who says Aaron, of all the 12 tribes, why, why not our family leader? Why not the head of our clan? Why not the head of our tribe? I mean, we could have any of them. And so God goes, I chose him. But then God goes, okay, I'll, I'll indulge your legitimate question. You want to be a democracy? So he said, bring 12. All 12 of you, bring your, your stick, your dead stick, your walking stick. Bring it, and we'll take it into the tabernacle. We will set it before the ark of the Lord overnight. On the next morning, they go in there, and God says, listen, the one that buds, that's whom I have chosen. They go in, and Aaron's rod in 24 hours has blossomed and created almonds coming out of it. God's just like, now, and he tells them, stick it in front of the ark. Stick it in front as a reminder to the people, and then later tells them, put it in the ark. All the things that are in the ark, God expressed for them to do. In fact, if you look with me at Numbers chapter 17, the Lord said to Moses, put back Aaron's staff in front of the ark of the covenant law to be kept as a sign to the, to the what? The rebellious. This will put an end to their what? Grumbling against me so that they will not die. See, God gives you and I an uncomfortable reminder, saying, you're independent. This is how I feel about your grumbling against me when I say to do it my way. But what do we do? Well, God, I, 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 like, you, I like what you say there in the Bible, but I think I could add to it. God, I like that you voted on that issue that way, but I'd like to give my vote. And so we kind of come in and we keep saying, God, I know you said to do it this way, but that's not how our culture does it. And we want to do our own. We're very independent. And God is saying, listen, put this here as a reminder that in the heart of humanity, we are rebellious, but that there's a God who loves us. But put this as an uncomfortable reminder that sometimes we don't do as God pleases, but we do as we please. And God is saying, no, it's an uncomfortable reminder. The third one are the tablets, and the tablets were placed in here as an uncomfortable reminder. Because you, you might remember back that Moses goes up the mountain of God, and the first set of tablets he gets, God carved them. They were already written out, and God gave them the copies, and he comes down the mountain after three days. And during those three days, the Israelite people had already said, well, Moses is out of town. Who are we going to worship? We, it's in the nature of people to worship something, anything. And in just three days, they create a golden calf, and they start to worship that calf. 
and they're bowing down to it, and they're giving their gold so that the calf can be created, and they're doing that, and Moses comes down, he sees the people in the middle of idolatry after he's met with the living God, and he instantly throws them down, and they shatter. And he goes back up the mountain to appeal on behalf of the people of Israel that God would not kill them all off and start over. And God then says, Moses, you begin to chisel out copies of my law with them, including the Ten Commandments. And he gives them to Moses and he says, put those in the Ark of the Covenant. All three of these things just show how quickly you and I have a chance even to run to idolatry, don't we? God, you've done great and mighty things. God, you've saved me. But it's so easy for me to put my trust into an image of my own creation of a picture of what I think my life ought to look like. These are uncomfortable reminders for the people of God. Now, I need to let you know that the ark didn't just end with those items that were in there, but that the ark has something else that's really attached to it that I want you to understand because just if you... If you don't know scripture, sometimes you just don't go, like, how does this work? How did it operate for them? Why is this such a game changer? The ark represented the mercy seat of God. And this is what happened. The ark is representing the presence of God. So people would look at this and say, God is with us. He's actually just right here. He is with us, and we love the Lord. And if we have this ark with us, then God is actually with us. And Right here is where God would dwell. Sometimes you think, well, God was maybe in this. Maybe this represented that God like lived inside, like a vampire or something, right? Like it was a coffin. That's not what God would do. God said, you create these two golden, solid golden, these were solid golden angels, these cherubim on the outside of the ark, and they extend their wings over what was called the mercy seat. Right here in the middle was what was called the mercy seat of God. And what happened is God would dwell between the wings of the two angels. And you'll remember when they were out in the desert, God's presence was represented by a cloud by day, and then that cloud would turn to a pillar of fire by night. And then when they would set up the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord, that cloud would go inside the tabernacle, past this huge veil curtain, and go into the Holy of Holies where the ark was kept, and God's presence would reside right there. He's, I'm right here, I'm with you. And so it represented the presence of God. Exodus 25, 22 says this, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and I will give you all my commands for the Israelites. God's presence with them. I am God with you. You remember that in forecasting the Messiah, they said his name would be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God's heart is to be with his people. It has been, it will always be. That's his heart is to be with them. And he said, listen, Israelite people, as the people of God, I will be with you. I will dwell right above the mercy seat right here. But you need to realize the ark also had the kiss of death. It had the kiss of death. Not lightning bolts coming out and frying people and they were melting away like Hollywood might picture it. But they basically, the ark belonged to the people of Israel. It was God's representation that he was with the people of Israel. And every now and then, a war would happen and the ark would get captured. At one time, the Philistine army came in. They got the ark and they take it to their city and they're like, yeah, we got the power. We got the game changer. We got the box, right? So they brought it into their temple and they come in the morning and their statue of their God, his name is Dagon, he had fallen down face down in front of the uh, ark. 
and they basically just said, hey, uh, that's weird. So they stood him back up. Maybe, you know, maybe a, an earthquake happened at night or something, but they, they stood him back up. The next day, he's laying down in front of the Ark of the Covenant of God, but his hands are chopped off, and they're out at the threshold of the temple and his head. So you have this headless, handless body of a statue that now has been damaged in the temple, and even to this day, well, not to this day, but back in those days, those Philistine priests who would worship a false god, they would step over, they wouldn't step on the threshold, they'd step over it as they went in and out, because at one time their gods, made by human hands, their gods, head and hands, were chopped off and put on that, on that threshold. The people in the town began breaking out with tumors all over, and they flipped out. They realized this is because we have the ark. They didn't want it anymore, so they took it to another Philistine city. How nice of that was the, uh, them was that, right? So they take it to this other city, and the people are like, awesome, we'll take it. They start breaking out with tumors. They're like, ah, let's take it to another city. By then, the word had gotten out, right? So the word is out. They don't want it. They're like, hey, leave it. And they, they basically just say, it, it, they start breaking out with tumors. They basically just said, all right, let's put it on a cart, and we'll send it back with like an offering. We'll send it back to Israel. And Israel found it along the road and, and took it. The Ark of the Covenant is an absolute game changer, but it has the kiss of death. Not only to the Philistines, because at that time, they were not the people of God. In a sense, the gospel wasn't open to them at that time. But the Israelite people were. It had the kiss of death. Later, they decided to bring the Ark from one location up to the city of David, to another. And, and, and they'd say, hey, let's, let's grab the Ark. And David is now king of Israel, and, and they basically put it on a cart, and they begin walking it along, and the oxen are pulling the cart. But as the oxen are going along, they get to this one spot, and the oxen stumble. The, the ark shakes, and there's a guy named Uzzah. We don't know anything about him except a very short story, because Uzzah reaches out and steadies the ark with his hand, and he dies instantly. And people take exception to that story. David, the king, took exception that he got so upset he didn't have it transported the rest of the way until they came to realize that it wasn't that Uzzah was trying to save the ark, it was that God had given very clear prescription about his holy presence and how that was to be carried, and it was to be carried with humanity, but what had they done? They put it on an ark. They put it on a cart carried by oxen, and he says, no, it's my priests shall carry this on their shoulders. That's how I've intended it to work. And when you don't do it my way, it has consequences. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like God saying, listen, listen, don't put me on your car or on your t-shirt or on a nice little plaque on your wall. I mean, it's okay to do that, but let's make sure first that I'm that place in your heart. Let's make sure that I'm that way. I got to tell you, so many of you, some even in this room, you might say, you know, I, I've decided to get a tattoo, and, and you're like, I'll, I'll tattoo a Bible verse on your body, and God's saying, that's great and all, but let me tell you, let's make sure that my word is hidden where? In your heart, that you might not sin against me. God's saying, listen, I want to be with you. I want to be in you. I want you to walk in that way. Having the presence of God in any situation is a game changer. And let me tell you, we overlook this so often, don't we? 
We overlook having the presence of God in our life as being a game changer in any situation. And so often we are looking for, for, you know, how can God, God, how can you rescue me? How can you save me? Maybe God's like a credit card and that's not his intent. So they walk with the priest carrying this ark. And the Israelite people come up out of the desert and they come to the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is at flood stage. Okay? you got to understand something about this. The people of Jericho... Their God, their false God, one of the things about that God was that it was a God of water. And so the God of water, when the, when the Jericho River was at flood stage, it basically meant that that is like a third wall. That listen, nobody, Egypt or anybody else, nobody can come attack us from the desert because they can't get by the river and they would give praise to their false God because of the, it was a God of water. They thought the water was protecting them. So God tells the Israelite people, bring it up, and I want the priests to carry it. And they're to carry the ark, and it's at flood stage, and they're to walk, and he says this, an unconventional plan like we looked at last week. He said the priests are to do this. They're to walk with the ark first, and they're to step into the river. Now, I just got to let you know right there, that's an unconventional plan. Like, we could lose this thing. You know, the bank is probably getting cut away. It's probably deep. And you want us to step. You want the the guy in the front, you want to step, you know, him with our most precious, valuable thing. You want him to step into the river. And God's like, that's exactly what I want. And it's unconventional. I know that, you know, right then, the first responders came up and said, hey, you know what? We need to string a line down river. And we need to, you know, make sure that we got some people on either side. And let's, you know, do some things in case we, like, lose the ark or somebody gets swept down. It's flood stage, right? God says, no, you just do that. So they go. They take it. As soon as the priest's foot touched the water, by the way, that takes faith, doesn't it? You got to get out of the boat you got to step into the water. What if you're the first guy? Hey, guys, you got me? You know, you're just, you know, hoping, all right, the rest of you, you got me, right? If it goes bad. As soon as his foot stepped the water, God parted the river. Just like he parted the Red Sea when they escaped out of Egypt. A story that most of these people had only ever, all of them really had heard about, except for Joshua and Caleb who lived it. They'd only ever heard about God parting the sea. And now they step into the river with the Ark of the Covenant and it parts. And they walk across on dry land. Look with me at Joshua chapter 4, verse 18. It says this. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stages before. Now picture this. You're the people of Jericho. Your God is the God of water. And the Israelite people wander out of the desert with their ark. They part the river at flood stage. And now they're coming up against your city. You're scared to death. You're saying, they've got the game changer. This is impossible. This never could have happened. They've got the game changer with them. Having the presence of God in any situation is a game changer. And let me just tell you, some of you are up against a wall in your life. And you're hoping, you know, some of you are waiting. You're waiting on a medicine. If I could just get that medicine, it'd be a game changer. Some of you are waiting on a business deal. If I could just do that. You're like, if my kid would just turn around. You're waiting on everything to be a game changer. You've got this wall in your life, and our minds are going and trying to figure out, how am I going to solve this? If I could just find that relationship, if I could just find the right job, if I could just have enough, if I could just win the lottery, if I could do whatever you're thinking, that would be the game changer. 
And what you need to realize is that the presence of God in any situation is the game changer. The question is, will you invite him into it? Will you invite him in? So how do they do this? What are they going to do with this? At God's request, he is front and center. Let me describe. God gives them instructions for how they're to put the ark out front and march around the city. And God gives them very specific instructions. In fact, he's saying, listen, I am first. I am front and center. That's the way it works. He said, basically, here's the front guard. You're going to have them. Then you're going to have the priests blowing their trumpets. Then you have the people carrying the ark. They'll be carrying it right in front. Then you have a rear guard. And then you have all the nation, all the rest of the army, all the rest of the nation wandering behind it. So the first thing that people see, along with this procession, is they see the presence of God. He is to be front and center. Why does God do that? Why does God demand to be front and center in your life? Why does he demand to be front and center in my life? It's because he realizes how easy it is for us to forget him, that we have a tendency to forget him. Don't you do that? Like in the middle of crisis, you're like, Lord, where are you? I'm in crisis. And as soon as things even out and settle down, when do you forget God? When you're in crisis or when things are good? When things are good, right? You kind of forget. You're like, oh, well, now, th- now it seems like I can manage my life. I'm not in the middle of crisis at this moment. So now it seems like I'm all, I'm all good. You and I, we have a tendency to forget God, and so he demands that he be first in our lives because we have a tendency to forget him. God said this first city that you come to, Jericho, all of the plunder is to be dedicated to me. I'm to be first in your life. He said, listen, to you and I, he says, give to me the first of your income. Give to God the first of your day. Your day will go better. Give to God the first of your week. Your week will go better by coming and worshiping in church, right? And, and if your week doesn't go well, at least you have the capacity to handle the bad events that happen in your week because you've been with God. You give him your first. You give him the first of your heart. God wants to be your soulmate because we have a tendency to forget him. I, I got to tell you something. When God gives the Ten Commandments, uh, you think he just gets right into it. Like, here they are. Here's the countdown. Here's the top 10. Drum roll, you know, going on. Here's the top, big 10. Here they come. Get ready. And what he does, before he even gets into the countdown, before he even gets to the top 10, he says this. He says, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, he says, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. And what he does here is he uses his personal name. The personal name of God is I am. He says, I am the great I am. The name Yahweh translated is I am. It means I am, I've always been, I always will be, I am. That's all you need to know. And he calls himself the great I am. He just basically says, I am. But he gives them the reminder, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. Right away, he lets them know, you didn't do this on your own power. You didn't do this on your own. He reminds, why? Because you and I have a tendency to forget him. Well, how does this happen? How does it happen that you and I have a tendency to forget God? Especially here in America, we're so independent and we're so kid-centered. I think it happens like this. When you and I were born, our parents or our parents took us and they put us in the crib. And, the, and we lay there in the crib. And you know how it is when the kid's in the crib. They like lay there for three, four hours a day. And you know, you're just like looking around, don't know what's going on. And, and then they put that thing over the crib, right? 
the mobile, the mobile that just goes around, right? And it's got like planets on it and maybe little animals. And you lie there for three, four hours a day and you begin to think, man, everything revolves around me. This is awesome. You think like I am the center of the universe. Like you're looking and there it goes and you're, you're the center. You think this is awesome. And then what happens? They take you out of the crib and then you start to do stuff and you got like paparazzi parents and they start taking all these pictures and anything you do, they put it up on video and you begin to go, I am the center of the world. The world revolves around me, right? And then you get old enough, you get into social media. And social media teaches you and I that the world revolves around us. Who's going to look at my life, my events, what I do? And, and social media, by the way, let me let just say, is a phenomenal medium for communication. It can be used for good in so many ways. But just like anything, it can also be used for great evil. And let me just give you three dangers. You might want to write these down. They're not on your outline, but you might want to write these down. Three dangers of social media. First of all, it's a robber of time. Amen? Come on. How many of you are like, whoa, where did the time go? You were on, you were looking at stuff, and all of a sudden you realize, wow, it just, it just robs my time. Second one, it exposes us to stuff we shouldn't be exposed to. It begins to open up you and I to appetites that, that we shouldn't feed, that we begin to see and go, oh, well, maybe I'd like that, and it begins to open up that. Third, it revolves around self. Those are dangers of social media doesn't mean that we should abstain entirely from social media. It means to say, how do you leverage the medium of social media for great good instead of great evil? And this is what I think has happened to America, honestly. I think it's made the whole thing. We think the universe, we think the world, we think everything revolves around us. That is all around us. And we live in a victimization culture that says, if I'm victimized, somebody, something, something else should rescue me. They should provide for me. You basically just throw it out there. And that's the kind of culture we live in right now. And we've propagated that kind of culture because of the nature of making it so self Centered. That's what I think has happened to America. But God says, no, put me front and center. I'm to be first in your life. I'm to be first in your country. I'm to be first in the world. God says, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. He says, I am the great I am. And the reminder of that for you and for me is that we say, okay, God, you are the great I am, which means I am not. I am not. God must be front and center. Well, number three, above all, bring God into your life. Bring him in. Bring God into your life. Bring God into your addiction, your real life. Bring God into your sin. Bring God into your parenting. Bring God into your marriage. Bring God into your financial stress. Bring God inside your health crisis. Get on your knees and bring God into your life. And the walls that you're facing, you'll find that they begin to fall down, that God begins to remove things that you can't do on your own. You bring God in, you'll find that he's the game changer. And what happens? You and I, we get married. And then you, you, you get married because you think, hey, this person's going to worship me like I worship me. And then a couple years go by. And guess what happens? They don't think you're that great. <laughs> Suddenly you're not the center of their universe like you thought they were going to be. And you begin to realize that sometimes that's it. I mean, it happens in our culture, right, all the time. You get these people, they get together, they get married, and after a while, what do they say? Oh, we grew apart. 
Oh, wait, and, and we, just, we just didn't fit. We just didn't. And what they're really saying is that person ceased to worship me like I already worship me. Why? Because we live in a self-centered society. God says, you put me first in your marriage. You put me front and center. I'm to be your soulmate. Don't you dare make another person your soulmate. I may give you someone as a helpmate, but the two of you together make me your soulmate. Bring God into your life. See, he's not a credit card to do it for you. He just wants to know you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants you to put him at the rightful place in your life. And so many of you, you've tried it. Let me, let me tell you, you have tried it on your own wisdom, on the culture's wisdom. You've tried it your own way, and you've tried to fix it, and you've tried to do it, and you're trying to manage it. And God is saying, time out. I'm going to give you an unconventional plan. Here's the first unconventional plan. Make me the center of your world. Give me the first of your day. God, I'm busy. I got to get up. I got to get to doing things. Make me the first of your day. See what a game changer it'll be. Bring God into your life. See, some of you are like, God, I'll try to work on this and I'll try and figure it out and then I'll just tell you about it. And God's like, no, you bring me into that. Jesus in John 17 prays, God, I pray that the church, that they will be one as I am one, that they will understand, they will have the kind of relationship. And he describes the kind of relationship in John 17. He says that I am in you and you are in me. He's basically saying the unity that he wants there, he wants for us to be in relationship with God, that we bring him into our problems. We bring him into our stuff as he is in us already. But he's a gentleman. He will not force his way into your heart. See, some of you do this. God, come rescue me. I don't want to give you the first. I don't want to give you all of me. I just need your help right now. And God's going, I'm a gentleman. You know, I'm not going to force my way into your heart. I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you. But I wait till you come to a place of humility to get on your knees and go, God, I, I have so mismanaged life. And some of it's just been pride. I've just thought that I could do what I wanted to do. And then when you and I engage God with humility, it engages his compassion. We invite him, God, I'm inviting you here. You're not going to force your way in, but God, I'm going to invite you to meet with me right here, right now. Revelation 3.20 says, Jesus is speaking. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. He's saying, listen, I'm not going to force my way in. I'll knock. I'm here. I'm available. You're hurting in there. You're, you're self-sufficient in there. You think you need nobody. You're isolating in there. Here I am. God says, Open the door because I want fellowship with you. I want oneness with you. I'm a relational God. I want to be relational in your life. Think about God's instructions. Grab the ark, go around, and walk around it once a day for six days. So God comes out of the tabernacle, he's out there, he's, the ark is in front of everybody, and he's walking with the people, and they make one lap, and the people inside Jericho are freaking out because they're going, this is it, here it comes. And then they go back in the desert and they camp, and they do this for six days, on the seventh day they do it seven times, 
God just wants to be with you and me every day. And on the seventh day, he wants to be with us that we set that day aside for him. That we honor him and we love him and we engage with him. God wants relationship with you. He wants to be with you. I think God just wanted to be with his people. Why would he create such a weird, unconventional plan? Part of it is I just think he liked being with his people. He wanted to be their God. He wanted them to see what he could do as a game changer. But he wanted to be with them. He didn't want them to go out and or him answer a prayer from afar and just let them do their thing. So above all, bring God into your life. Number four, stop thinking that God lives in a box. Some of us put him in a compartment, don't we? We put him into Sunday morning. We put him into Sunday night. We put him into a Bible study. We put him into a cognitive thing. I believe in God intellectually. But you do not know what it's like to know God relationally. He's in a box. That box doesn't open up to actually make you pray for your problems. You're prayerless in your life. If you're prayerless in your life, you don't have a relationship with God. I'm just going to say it straight up. Without communication, you probably don't have a marriage either, right? We're the bride of Christ. We communicate with him, but we keep him in an intellectual box. God, I believe in you. I have faith. That's not relationship. You put him in a box. He's not in a box. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if you have opened up your heart and invited him to come in and transform your life, then God lives in you. He no longer is in over some box or some mercy seat. You wonder, why can't we find the Ark of the Covenant? I think God did never want it to be found. Chances are it got melted down a long time ago. Gold prices were pretty high not too long ago. They're pretty good. But he doesn't want to be there, right? He says, now I want to be in you. What would happen if we found the gold box? How weird would we get, right? How odd would we get if we found it? And God's saying, I want you to find me, that he lives in you. He lives in your heart, my heart. Everything, I need to let you know that's so interesting about this is that everything we've talked about today, everything here represented, all the articles inside, all of them inside there, they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you look back, you go, here's this bowl of bread, the bread from heaven. You go, you look at that. Jesus describes himself in the New Testament that he is the bread of life come from above. What's he drawing a picture of? I'm all sufficient. I'm all that you need. There are no other sacrifices that are going to need to be made. I am everything that you need. And you keep looking for everything else and you keep trying to hoard for more. And he's saying, it is fulfilled in me. I'm the bread of life. We see Aaron stick in here, and Aaron was the high priest. Well, Jesus is the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, if you look at the, old, uh, the scriptures. And you realize that he is of a priestly line. And Jesus is the great high priest, and he has fulfilled the duty of the high priest, just like Aaron's rod has budded. Why? because he would have to fulfill the duty of the high priest because of the rebellion of people, you and me included. And then the tablets, the Ten Commandments, the law of the covenant. Jesus fulfilled the covenant by shedding his blood. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. Do you remember what he said? This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is a 
new covenant. This was the old one. New covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it and remember to me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What? Until he returns. He's coming back. He made a new covenant in his final sacrifice. He took care of the violation of the old covenant, which means he still had his copy. He took care of his part. He did his part, but we violated our copy. And he said, I will fulfill that by sacrificing myself. And last, the mercy seat. You need to understand how this would work. The mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, was in the, in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Once they built the temple up there in, in Jerusalem, they would put the Ark of the Covenant in there. It was the most holy place. They put this massive, about four-inch thick tapestry veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple and from the courtyards and where regular people could go. And so only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And even then, he could only go in there once a year. So he would grab his incense his incense are in a little box, and he would walk in, and he would swing it, and he would, he would almost make it just swing it all around, a lot of smoke going around, because it's almost like I, I, I'm afraid to face the presence of God. I'm afraid to be before a holy God. This is a God who, this ark had the kiss of death. I mean, God is almighty, holy God, and so he's making it foggy in there, and he's, he's whipping that thing around, and then he would bring with him two, two basins, and in the first basin, he would dip his hand, and in the basin was the blood of a bull that was sacrificed out in the temple courts. And he would take that blood of the bull and he would get it on his hand and he would sprinkle it right on the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle it there as a remission for sin in case he had sinned or his family had sinned. So first thing he does is he takes care of his own sin. Just in case I have sinned, God, in any way, I'm making it clean so I have the opportunity to approach you because otherwise I am doomed. In fact, what would happen is they would tie a rope around his ankle and they put bells on him so they could hear him moving around in there. And if he didn't move for a while, they would just pull him out with a rope because anybody else going in there would die. Maybe the priest was old and they thought, oh, we better make sure, you know, in case we get the guy out, in case he expires in there, right? Bumps up against the ark, you know, goes down. But he would do that the second basin he would take. And he would dip his hand in that and he would begin to sprinkle on from the blood of a goat that had been sacrificed outside. And this was the forgiveness of sins for the people and the nation of Israel. And he would do this once a year. And guess what? It had a shelf life. That, that sacrifice before a holy God only lasted for a year. And the high priest and him alone would have to go in year after year for his own sin and for the sins of the people. And it had a shelf life. And that was it. Jesus comes along and he says, I will become the holy, pure sacrifice, the final sacrifice. This new covenant is in my blood. He fulfills everything that was happening when it came to the ark, when it came to the presence of God. All the stuff in the box are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And the moment that Jesus died and gave up his spirit on the cross, there was a great earthquake. The veil, God tears that veil in the holy of holies in the temple. He tears it wide open. From top to bottom, this thing is just thrashed wide open and people are just almost in horror. Why? Because because of the blood of Christ, we can now approach God with reverence, a holy fear, not fearful like I might die, he's got the kiss of death, but that we can approach him and say, God, I can come to your mercy seat. There can be forgiveness for my mess and for my sin. 
It is all fulfilled in Christ. You need to know that. That Jesus tore the veil. He atoned for our sin. We have direct access to God through Jesus permanently. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, I want you to ask as you're reflecting on your own life, have you given your life to Jesus? Or has he just been God in a box to you? Has he just been an idea? Has he just been a faith? Has he just been a belief? Or have you surrendered in humility yourself to him? Believers in the room, those of you who have already made a decision for Christ, you know it. You're walking in relationship with them. But let me ask you this. Have you invited God into your wall? Are you making him first in your life? Are you going to give him the first of your day? Are you going to give him the first of your week? Are you going to give him the first of your income? Are you going to give him the first of your heart? There are areas where you and I, we're so prone to idolatry, so prone to wandering. And maybe today God is just revealing to you an area where you, you realize that's me. I am, I am so easily prone to wander, God. I've created something to be like a golden calf and I've missed out on the presence of God in my life. Maybe you'll just invite him into that and surrender to him again in that area. But maybe for some of you in this room, you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never known what that means. You don't know what it means to have a relationship with God. But you know that in your sin, your, your own heart tells you, you know that your sin condemns you. But today you've heard that there is a way out through belief in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, that he fulfilled the covenant for you. And if you'd like to say yes to him today, then you pray a prayer like this right after me, right where you're seated, and you just pray this silently. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I believe that you are God, that you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried in the grave, that you rose to new life. Today I'm saying yes to you, Jesus. I ask you to come in and make me a new creation, that you would transform me. Today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.